0: You've been here many times, Chris, but it's my first time, and I was just reflecting on how helpful it is to have been able to talk with you every week for over a year now, almost two years, about Bitcoin and where we think it's going. Conversing with you has changed my thinking on quite a few things, and I feel like I am a calmer, more rounded person as a result of it, and hopefully our listeners do as well.
1: Well, I don't know if I can take credit for that, but I do think, looking back at it, it has been a very historic 100 weeks to be covering Bitcoin, because we started really kind of before the crash. So we got to watch the very end of a crazy bull run, and then what might be one of the most Crazy historic crashes that I've seen yet with the wipeout of many entities and a prolonged sort of stale period of the price and large institutions coming in. It has been really historic to watch. So I'm really glad I've been here for at least most of those 100 weeks. And of course, when we started recording this podcast, you were
0: already a Bitcoin OG who had stepped back to focus on your work, your podcasting empire, your family. And I've been in Bitcoin for several years. And i would kind of been on that Bitcoin evolutionary journey because when I first got into Bitcoin, I, it was so powerful because it, it enabled you know, financial freedom when you're dealing with capital controls and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is going to disrupt the world tomorrow. Like this thing is happening. And then in the bear market of sort of 2019 and uh, those dark days when the Van Eck ETF proposals were just being shot down and Gemini had an ETF proposal, and I suddenly realized wait this is not happening the way I thought it would. What's going on? And I realized the monetary system, the politics around that were a lot bigger and more complex and and maybe entrenched than I thought. And I realized that this was going to be a long journey, but potentially even more important because I think we've seen, since I've been in Bitcoin, increased financial surveillance and financial control all around the world in North America and Europe, but also in totalitarian regimes, China being the prime example. And I don't think that there is any other monetary technology other than cash, maybe, that compares to the financial freedom that Bitcoin can provide to people. And so over time, my belief that Bitcoin is a revolutionary technology and will likely be an important building block, if not the foundation of a future financial system, has increased significantly. At the same time, I think that I would give very different advice to people about Bitcoin. Than I would have in 2017. Because in 2017, I was like, you need to buy this thing now. No one ever listened. And I don't think it would have helped them because when the price crashes, most
1: people sell. That is a good point. When when you've when you've suggested people buy and then the price crashes, they always come knocking on your door like, hey, man, what the hell? And you're like, well, it's a five-year, ten-year thing, man. Are you going to refund me? Yeah, right. I always looked at it in two ways. From the very beginning, I thought for this to really impact the world, it's going to take maybe my lifetime. But I expected in the shorter term more adoption amongst the tech people world, like is kind of like a, a backend protocol just for internet payments. Now I just kind of thought maybe it'd become like TCP IP for money. On the front end, you wouldn't really bother with it for a user. And we do see that to some degree, of course, with companies like Strike and others that are definitely using it that way. Uh, but that adoption took longer than I expected. Now that we see it with like sort of hindsight, I realized we needed something like lightning in place. We needed a lot more before that was going to happen. And so that seems sort of silly in retrospect, but I, I've always kind of had like this feeling like the big stuff's going to take a really, really long time. But there'll be small little wins here and there. And I think we've gotten some of that. You know, what's kind of wild is we're just six weeks out from Bitcoin's 15th anniversary of the white paper release on Halloween. You know, I mean, in the middle of the financial crisis back then, Satoshi was releasing this on Halloween. And here we are 15 years later. I think when you say that, it feels both like a really long time. And I can't believe I've been following something for that long almost. But when you talk about it in terms of money and, and societal change, 15 years is nothing for changing culture and changing society. It's not even a generation. It's, it's, it's still baby uh, years. So it's that that old classic saying, like, we're still so early is really true, even 15 years later, when you look at it on a culture timescale. And I think that gets to where I wanted to go with this, which is
0: individual and also oddly cultural, because when... I got into Bitcoin, I was in that wave of kind of monetary Bitcoin small block maximalism. And I didn't know that there were diverse views on Bitcoin at that point. And then I discovered them later. And then I discovered, okay, there are Bitcoin communities that are interested in client-side validation, like Tarot, like RGB, things like Drive Chain, And there are a lot of Bitcoiners who are fiercely against that and that kind of change. And I think also we observe the Bitcoin community growing a lot. It's definitely grown with the participation of former Ethereans who are probably still playing around on Ethereum, but they're now selling ordinals on Bitcoin. But it also expanded to the point where Bitcoin started having like internal culture wars. The Bitcoin community, I think, started to reflect some of the external societal culture wars and that was really interesting and i think that when we first started talking that really bothered me i felt like we needed to resolve that but now i feel like of course every person brings their tribal baggage with them to the bitcoin community of course but the clever thing about it is that unlike other communities which have to define themselves around their language their political views their social views etc bitcoin defines itself in my view around the code you're running around which version of Bitcoin core is on your node. And I think I may have made this point a little too aggressively recently, but someone was talking about how, you know, Bitcoin shouldn't change. You know, this drive chains thing is so bad. And I replied, that's your opinion, whatever. At the same time, what version of Bitcoin core are you running? Or are you not running a node? And if you're not running a node, do you even have an opinion? You're just shouting into the void. You're posting in Bitcoin because there is this protocol that is the in a sense, physical representation of Bitcoin values, in a way it makes the community easier because we can scream at each other, but it doesn't cause a break in consensus, a break in the sort of global Bitcoin consensus community, because
1: that only happens when we change the code we're running. Yeah. And it still gives us all something in common. It can manifest in tribal wars online, but it can manifest positively at physical meetups where you go to a room full of strangers or a brewery or a class or a library. You don't know anybody in there, but you all have Bitcoin and the Bitcoin terminology and language in common. And so there is that element to it. You know, I think the Bitcoin community shows us that Bitcoin doesn't fix everything, but it it does create a, a common bag that we all hold. I've been able to pull from that set of community values a few things that I think have improved my life. I want to be alive and healthy in 10 plus years when I'm, you know, making, you know, making my living off of just cashing out Bitcoin or whatever it's going to be. Um, And so I want I want to be healthy enough to experience that. I, I want to invest in skills that are going to be useful so I can live a more independent, sovereign life when I reach that phase. So, you know, this summer we spent a lot of time learning how to farm. Learning how to fix things and just learning how to work on our own cars and just taking those skills on and kind of trying to follow a trajectory that, as my Bitcoin is going up in value over time, so is the skill set I've invested in myself. And I don't, I may have gotten there without Bitcoin, but it wasn't until I had something that was hard and scarce that I actually wanted to hold on to for a long time that I started thinking differently. And so I think it has influenced in my thought process in some ways. And then I've kind of been inspired by some of the aspects of the Bitcoin community culture that I like, that click with me. And is it because you have to do Bitcoin yourself? The way Bitcoin
0: works is self-custody. And since you have to do that, you thought, okay, well, there's other things I can do too. I can grow my own food. I can fix my own car, that sort of thing.
1: There's that. And there is the, okay, well, if I were going to choose the life I want and say Bitcoin is worth quite a bit of money, in the 2030s or something, how would I like my life to be where I could really fully take advantage of that potential wealth? And it's maybe it's a little bit of land and I'm off grid and I have a little farm setup going. And well, how do I get there? Well, I get there by hodling and investing in those skills today for the long term. And it's sort of just a way of thinking when you're like, well, if this actually works out, what do I have to do now to make sure I'm ready for it? And I think it's a very positive way of thinking because it's a longer. It's a longer-term style of thinking versus where I feel like fiat gives you a real near-term style of thinking.
0: This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded early on September 13th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad. It is episode 100, and I am here, as always, with me, Chris. Hey, welcome in episode 100, everybody. Today, we're going to discuss finance the international exchange with a U.S. entity and how it's cut a third of its staff and lost its CEO in the U.S. There's been a lot of news about the acquisition of a Bitcoin trust company called Fortress by Ripple Labs, the maintainers, holders, the center of the XRP altcoin scam. In economics, I found an interesting article about U.S. debt collection, and I just had a legacy financial scam And it really resonated with me in altcoins. One of the two OneCoin founders has been sentenced in the U.S. for his role in a crypto MLM Ponzi scheme. The other founder is still at large. She has been since 2017. This is one of my favorite crypto scam stories, and there's a really good podcast about it too. It seems that Coinbase is finally integrating Lightning. only took them three years. And is it actually a bearish signal when Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, starts talking about how important. Bitcoin is. I think he hadn't mentioned it until a few months ago. He'd only talked about Ethereum for a few years. So get into what that might signal. In Bitcoin education, there is a Bitcoin optech That includes some discussion about developments in Tarot. Everybody forgot about Tarot. It was that assets on Lightning and Bitcoin protocol. It was very clever. And BRC20 beat them to it. So we can discuss that. And then we have some big boosts for our 100th episode. And we can thank our community and discuss their questions. And that's our show.
1: The news cycle did give us a birthday present because we are recording early. We were wondering, what are we going to talk about? But well, last night it came out that Binance.us' CEO had stepped down. I think his name is Brian Schroeder, and I think a third of all of the Binance.us staff is now gone. About a hundred positions have departed the firm. And Binance is on the defense. The Binance US division said in a statement to Cointelegraph quote. The Securities and Exchange Commission's aggressive attempts to cripple our industry and the resulting impacts on our business have real-world consequences for American jobs and innovation, and it is un and this is an unfortunate example of that. They also say they have more than 7 years though, of financial runway as they're going to move to a crypto-only exchange.
0: I think that when a crypto exchange loses their fiat on-ramps, this begins the spiral to irrelevance. My Opinion is that the last really big crypto only exchange was BitMEX, even though they never had traditional banking. When they got sued by the US government and other competing crypto exchanges got traditional banking connections, BitMEX seemed to fade in relevance. And now that Binance is under attack and losing fiat payment rails, I imagine that they are also on the kind of spiral to losing volume, losing users, and eventually a new exchange that may or may not be regulatory compliant will come up to take their place.
1: Yeah, that uh, seven-year on-ramp is kind of a silly thing to say. You don't know what that, what that means in a bull run or a big crash. That, that just doesn't make sense. I think, too, that this is in the background of active lawsuits going on by the SEC, if I recall correctly. So we're really seeing a multi-fronted attack here. And this is exactly what we expected would happen after BlackRock announced their ETF. One of the reasons the SEC has been declining these spot ETFs for Bitcoin is because they are concerned about market manipulation. One of the ways that BlackRock and now all the other ETFs have solved that is by a surveillance agreement with Coinbase. But there's still the element of who was manipulating the market. And the SEC has made public statements. Gary himself has made public statements that he believes Binance manipulates the Bitcoin market. And so when you when you put the two together, the Coinbase surveillance agreement, BlackRock and the other 10 ETFs ambitions, and the fact that Binance was potentially the thing in the way, just even if you degrade Binance and specifically Binance US, I think with that combined with the surveillance issue, you probably have solved the SEC's primary complaints. And I think this has probably been in the works for a while. That's why we have the ETFs filed when they have been. And on the subject of Binance
0: being a punching bag. I think it's interesting that there has been news coming out about Digital Currency Group that is the parent company of Genesis, and Genesis was of course the crypto lender that got wrecked by Three Arrows Capital, and also it had been used by the Gemini exchange of the Winklevi brothers, and everyone lost their money on that. But DCG had actually sucked assets out of Genesis prior to its bankruptcy, and likely they knew that was coming. And so they... they borrowed the BTC and other assets off of Genesis's balance sheet before it went bankrupt. And now Genesis is actually suing DCG, you know, which is crazy. A subsidiary company is suing their parent company. I mean, that's very weird, right? So this is some pretty well-documented potential fraud in US crypto market participants. But the news is all about Binance. And also, what exactly has Binance done? You know, we don't know. Maybe something much worse, but we don't know. So it's kind of interesting that the focus is all on Binance, and it almost feels that at least in the court of public opinion, DCG and Barry Silbert, its CEO, are kind of getting a pass right now, potentially because DCG's biggest product, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, is maybe the second most likely candidate to be (laughs) an ETF in the US one day.
1: Yep. Yeah, funny how how that works out. We'll see where it goes. Time's running out. I mean, I think, what is it, January's sort of the ultimate deadline for the response from the SEC. So we got to get things cleaned up moving right along. Uh, It sounds like we have a little Bitcoin uh, discussion out of Japan that's going to make us both wish we were uh, traveling over there. This is a really cool stacker news post i
0: found and it kind of describes the bitcoin scene in japan the macro background sort of led to the environment that bitcoin encountered when people got into bitcoin there it it just seems so cool you know they have a kyc free scene Uh, they say it's not great in japan i think that that really depends because japan is a much more cash-based society than the u.s as certain technologies like credit cards just got less popular, they, like they haven't been as popular in Japan. And so Japan is famous for having a lot of cash and also a lot of fax machines. I've always wanted to uh, explore that uh, Bitcoin scene there. And I, I thought this was a kind of a fun way to uh, learn a little bit about it. And of course, we have those famous that, you know, Wiz, the famous Bitcoiner, I think lives in Tokyo. And of course, Mount Gox was a very odd right. business. I think Mark Karpelis was Canadian running a Bitcoin exchange in the middle of Tokyo. How did that happen?
1: (laughs) Um, You know, the thing that they bring up in here, right, is the debt to GDP is the highest in the world at 263%. And sort of interesting that as that number ticks up, the movement starts to grow. And it also sounds like maybe things have ticked up a little bit post-COVID. Good resource. Stacker News has uh, sometimes got some really good signal over there and uh, some resources to pick up Bitcoin without KYC as well. I've also heard that Japan is a really
0: big XRP buyer. Like there are a lot of Japanese XRP holders.
1: Oh, good. Then those uh, those bag holders just help bail out a bunch of uh, Fortress customers, including Swan customers, I imagine.
0: Right. And this is just such an interesting story. And I think it kind of relates to some... Misconceptions about what Fortress Trust and Prime Trust do. And so my understanding is that Fortress Trust is a company that holds money transmission licenses. And so they're kind of like a legal entity that you can interact with as a company to
1: buy Bitcoin and store Bitcoin. Yeah, this this process of owning a money transmitter license in every state is so complicated that you can become a business that does only that. And Fortress Trust, to actually hold crypto...
0: They use two providers, Fireblocks for hot wallets, and BitGo for cold wallets. And we've been talking a lot about BitGo because Brandon Black, formerly of BitGo, who helped BitGo develop their Taproot multi-sig wallet, he was on our show and he's been talking a lot about Taproot and, and multi-sig in the wild right now and talking about covenants. And so I think BitGo's come up quite a bit. And it seems that, I mean, first of all, there are several issues around Fortress Trust. I think the first issue is that the team that runs Fortress Trust is the CEO and his retinue. That were running prime trust when prime trust lost a huge access to a huge amount of ethereum and then didn't inform their customers and you know basically bought ethereum to fund withdrawals that customers were making and drove the entire enterprise into bankruptcy and you know likely broke the law in the process and then these people left to form a new trust company which is very similar to prime trust and then they've just had a security breach where some of their hot wallets were compromised they claim by a some sort of metrics vendor integration like they were yeah they say third party analytics service and so it's you know it's a very bad look but it's even worse because fortress trust did not really reveal that they lost funds they said customer funds are safe but actually, that's not true. They lost customer funds, and then they got acquired by Ripple, who bailed them out so that they had extra cash to give those customers whose funds they lost. That's not the same as funds are safe, in my view.
1: They're safeish now, <laughs> is really what they're saying. Like, they weren't safe, but we scrambled, and we sold quick and got it covered. It, it's hard to really know it maybe was... They say four customers were impacted. Is that what you read? And it's not a huge amount of funds. I think it was less than $12 million
0: at the time of the incident. The issue is that the breach happened. They obscured the details when they revealed it. And then they got it acquired by Ripple, which is in some sense a legitimate crypto business because they operate in the US. I think they're suing the SEC and likely to win. But on the other hand, Ripple is a complete scam of a business because the core of their business model is pumping and dumping the XRP token. And it blows my mind that this is one of the largest quote-unquote legitimate businesses in the U.S. corporate crypto market. It just blows my mind and now they're acquiring the custodian of multiple crypto businesses and of course as we always mention including Swan which is kind of held up as a bitcoin only way to you know purchase and hold bitcoin and i think this gets to the core that and i think this gets to the core issue which is that Swan Prime Trust Fortress XRP in a way these are traditional financial businesses. They're governed by U.S. financial rules, and they have to be this way. They have to have these weird convoluted transmission licenses, third-party vendors. I mean, it's very complicated. If you have an account with Swan, your Bitcoin, depending on the day, could be custodied at either Fireblocks or BitGo, but legally managed by Fortress. I mean, that's very weird and convoluted. And that's absolutely legacy finance. I think this kind of speaks to the limit of these businesses, in my view, in terms of how interesting and revolutionary and cool they can be. I think this is kind of their limit, frankly.
1: Yeah. Or the other way to think of it is, okay, it's your move, Swan. Um, Show us what you got. And they've been implying on Twitter that they have plans that they're going to be announcing in a short period of time. We'll see what that is. Maybe it's just another back end. Maybe it's something more sophisticated I think it's a transitional period of time too, and it's going to take forever for legacy system and Bitcoin systems to figure out exactly where they fit together. Inevitably, I have to picture a world where Swan's probably not a company, but a feature of another company, of a larger company, of an institutional company, right? Swan ends up getting bought or something like that. And one of the features of this institution, when you buy your Bitcoin through them, or you can go with their ETF, or you can go with their auto DCA, and it auto deposits to your wallet. You know, it's it's people like the, uh, the front end is what they like. It's what everybody always says is that, well, if they've got some nice technology, well, somebody will probably buy that one day and it becomes a feature, not an entire product. Or Swan pivots and does something truly unique and different here that makes them stand out and sort of solve this problem. We'll see, they, they like to boast online about their engineering staff and its capabilities. I guess now's the opportunity for us to see where this goes. If you do use Swan out there, you know, the, the thing is, is you got to take advantage of that auto withdrawal feature. You know, that's what I think the best thing about their platform is. And if you're using Swan and you're not withdrawing automatically, I don't really get it. And they say 60% of their customers or a high 60% of their customers, they auto withdraw. Well, it should be 90, 99%. It should be 95% at least. So if you're listening to this and you're not using their auto withdrawal, this is the kind of red flag moment you get before you end up losing your Bitcoin. Set up their auto withdrawal system. System and just have it go out every single week so you don't have to worry about it. And like you said, these are really nice to have.
0: The auto-withdraw features, the ability to give swan a block of addresses so that when swan auto withdraws from your account they don't always reuse the same address so that's kind of good for on-chain privacy though of course anyone who can subpoena swan for all your details can figure out all your addresses so it doesn't protect you from kind of government surveillance but you know these are nice to haves and they seem kind of like small great features. And now we know that you can do this. They're likely to become industry standard. And I think that's a sign of a good product. But when you look at the foundation of these businesses that are selling you Bitcoin, I honestly don't think they're necessarily going to be huge companies in the future. Because even Coinbase, when larger Legacy banking and exchange providers give their customers access to the stuff that these crypto native companies, quote unquote, are doing right now. They have such a huge multiple of number of users that overnight they become the biggest companies in crypto. I think. I think that that's what happens. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know why that's important to say. Maybe it's not.
1: Yeah, it's something to reflect on. Uh, So, it sort of goes back to what I said. It's your move, Swan.
0: On this kind of down note, should we? discuss this essay on the U.S. consumer debt collection industry and why it's showing up in a Bitcoin podcast.
1: Oh, man. All right. That's quite the tease. Let's hear it.
0: So it all goes back to a few nights ago. I had to verify an amount in a legacy finance account, like a brokerage account. So I go into my Bitwarden password manager, go to the link that I've saved in there. I try to log in. And I don't just get, you can't log in right now, try again later. I get, we don't recognize your account details. Uh oh! And that gives me a bit of a scare because I know that this system is basically SMS two-factor authentication protected, which means it's very easy to break in because you can just port my cell phone number and get the uh, verification codes to log in. When I look at that, and of course, it's outside of business hours for this company because this you know, this company has like EST business hours, so you can't call anyone in the middle of the night. And it's like, wow, has someone hacked my account? drained it and closed my brokerage account and I didn't know for 10 hours because I had to wait until the next day when they were their office was open and oh. I could call them oh.
1: And I had to, oh.
0: yeah, and so I had to, you know, wait and then I called them and they were very nice. And like, oh yeah, now everything works now. And I'm like, okay, so what went wrong? No idea. And I thought, well, this is really interesting because I think it's a great example of, you know, you don't have to be a Bitcoin maximalist to see why as a Bitcoiner, I was less kind of freaked out right then than I would have been if I didn't have Bitcoin. Because when you hold Bitcoin, as long as you can figure out how to secure a private key, which is kind of scary, steep learning curve, but once you get there, you never really worry about it. Like I don't, you don't have to worry it about your account being closed and hacked if you're a Bitcoin hodler. It's very unlikely that someone is going to break into your house and steal your cold card and then throw it into a $100 million machine to scan it with an electron microscope or something.
1: The other thing we Bitcoiners can take for granted is the proof of payment. Um, I got a letter this week from the IRS and it's one of these, you owe us money. You're, you're overdue, you owe us money. I'm like, what? I, I thought everything, oh man. I opened it up, Right. They say I owe them $20 from 2020. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, I know I paid everything. And I just Uh-oh, thought, I wish, Uh-oh. I wish I could just show them, here's the here's the blockchain, here's the transactions, you got your money. Now I got to go through the whole hassle of, you know, I'm just going to pay it, right? <laughs> of course. But the whole rigmarole of paying it even is going to be a pain in there. <laughs> uh, and I just, I have a bank account record, you know, I, there's a check, but. I guess I just don't have anything after that to really prove it. And it's their word against mine. So I'm going to send them a $20 and 54 cent check. <laughs> it just seems so arcane. So this
0: led to looking again at this blog, Bits About Money, where this, uh, you know this fellow writes a lot about money over the years and this article about debt collection, because I also have gotten calls in the past. From debt collectors who claim I or someone who had my phone number in the past owe them money. And I've always thought that's really weird because it's just random person calling you saying you owe money and they're gonna like start messing up your life. And I, you know, I haven't owed money. So I've always said, Oh, okay, so can you verify this? Can you prove it somehow? And it turns out that that is how you deal with debt collectors in the US at least. You have to ask them to verify that the debt they think you owe them is yours. And often when you say that, they disappear because it turns out based on this article that there is no verification. That you know debt collection is just this wild west, completely shady industry and it's basically a thin veneer of legitimacy on top of straight up, you know, money shakedowns of anyone they can find to kind of shake down. And this all kind of tied together in my mind because I had this Slightly anxious night of like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, did this account get compromised? And then, you know, I'm reading this article, I'm just thinking, legacy finance is really, really terrifying. You really have to trust that so many people are doing the right thing. And you cannot verify if you've been even been um, scammed in many cases, because what happens if if someone just removes a zero from your brokerage account? You could go in there and be like, hey, I had more money in there, but there's no way to verify the history of that account unless you've been getting weekly or, or monthly summaries, and you could send someone a whole bunch of paper and they could debate with you about it. I mean, it's, it's very tenuous. There's a huge amount of trust involved. And I guess I just don't feel that trust anymore in these traditional systems. It feels to me like every time I interact, I'm like, oh, here's another thing that could go wrong. Oh gosh, not too reassured by this detail. And so I think this is kind of part of my Bitcoin journey in that I think Bitcoin is a real life hack because by just Having some Bitcoin, you get to experience a radically different, incredibly empowering way of doing finance and money that is so absolutely different in its security model and trust assumptions than legacy finance. And that if you haven't done that, I don't think that you can even see the problems with this legacy system. And so I think
1: that alone is worth, you know, many people just giving Bitcoin a try. I tend to agree. And any large life responsibility can change you a bit. And sometimes they can change you for the better. Um, I think, you know, being a parent has been a positive influence on my life and personality. And it was a big life decision. Learning to drive. It's a very act. It feels like an act of sovereignty when you're when you're young. You know, it's a it's a real act of freedom and it's a big risk and it's something it's a responsibility you have to take seriously and get right. And sometimes you get burned and learn by doing, and it can change your life for the better, though. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say Bitcoin is in that kind of category.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Kids need to, at least in the U.S., they're probably going to need to learn how to drive a car, and they definitely need to learn how to handle a private key.
1: Yeah, if you can drive, if you can raise kids, if you can feed yourself every day, you can probably figure out how to handle a private key. It's just, it's an important thing, but it's part of, it's part of being an individual. And another important individual responsibility is not being
0: a scammer. And I will bring, uh, to which I will point to the one coin scam. Are you familiar with this podcast and uh,
1: crypto Ponzi scheme? Gosh, I don't know if I do remember OneCoin. Oh, it's such a great name too. I feel like it would have, it should have stuck in the old memory there. So, so uh, give me the backstory here. It, it sounds like it's ended in a big win and it's, it's success for the founders of OneCoin. Real, well, half real of, win, half real success.
0: Half <laughs> of the founders of OneCoin might still have some success. Oh, I found out about this scam from a podcast produced by BBC, from a podcast produced by the BBC called The Missing Crypto Queen. And it's about this woman, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, who was just an absolute Ponzi scheme scammer. And she marketed this cryptocurrency called OneCoin as a Bitcoin killer. It was marketed to the Most unsophisticated investors. It got really big in Africa. It got quite big in immigrant communities in. Europe and the US, and there was no blockchain. They created like two fake websites to show that there was like one coin activity, and no one ever validated anything. And the way it worked was they were using multi level marketing. So they just found people who did multi level marketing scams, which are essentially Ponzi schemes but legal because there is a quote unquote product. And they did the exact same thing. So it's actually very similar to BitConnect because the way you got one coin was you bought a education course. And so since that education course was a real product, they could take your money. I mean, it's not really a real product, but you know they could say it was a real product. And so this made it a legal MLM, not a crypto Ponzi scheme. So they were just combining, you know, the idea of crypto, its mystique, and the sense of FOMO that people have, you know, they didn't buy Bitcoin early, but now they bought OneCoin and OneCoin is a Bitcoin killer. And so In many ways, the scam is just so obviously stupid, but people got really deep into it. And then Dr. Ruja disappeared. She got on a plane, or she she claimed to have gotten on a plane. She called somebody uh, who she worked with, said she was getting onto a plane, and then she just was never seen again. She was from Bulgaria. There's kind of mob connections because the uh, it, it seems like Eastern European mafias helped one coin launder huge amounts of money. There's a connection to like Middle Eastern royal families in Dubai or something, because the uh, one coin scammers bought a lot of property there, and it seems like some kind of royal figures helped them smooth some transactions. It's it's really kind of a, a sordid story. And one of the founders was a fellow named Sebastian Greenwood, who was also, I think, dating Ignatova. He was arrested several years ago, I think in Thailand, and expatriated to the United States. And it was kind of interesting because I believe that Greenwood was trying to cut a deal with the Secret Service because uh, the Secret Service, oddly enough, uh, is in charge of wire fraud in the US. And so I think he was recording his calls with her at some point, and she was recording her calls with him. So the whole thing is like very dramatic, very sordid. And now it seems that at least one of the founders has been caught and charged with fraud. But of course, Dr. Ruja is still at large. And I think there's some speculation that we may never find her again. And not in a good way, you know, because she has these mob connections. So it might be that she will be disappeared or has been disappeared. So there's a lot of mystery around what's
1: happened to her still. Every now and then you come across these crazy, crazy scammer stories. You know, like there's you see all the average scammers like your bit boys every day. But then you come across these gems where there's like these characters with personalities that then turns out to have mob connections. And lots of mystery around their personality, some of which could be used to cover what happened to them. It's what a crazy time. It's it, it feels like it's like the 1920s or something, but with the you know with the mob and, and crime. And the interesting thing about the podcast
0: that goes into how Dr. Ruja performed this scam was that there are all of these ways to kind of legitimize yourself. Like she had a picture of herself on, a, I think the you know in like Newsweek or maybe she was associated with like TEDx or something I mean basically there are all of these places where you can pay money to do like a featured promo segment and then you can use that as evidence that you are a legitimate you know professional person or professional business or something and so it was just fascinating to kind of learn about how you can buy legitimacy and how that's very effective at convincing people to believe you I'd completely recommend the podcast even though it is not a Jupiter broadcasting show
1: (laughs) i had a chuckle at brian armstrong who's dropped the dot eth from his twitter username he uh, wrote on weapon x the other day quote the team did a great job of digging into this and we've made the decision to integrate lightning he goes on to say quote bitcoin is the most important asset in crypto and we're excited to do our part to enable faster slash cheaper bitcoin transactions we'll take some time to integrate so please be patient
0: Um, Is he going to add a BTC at the end of his name, maybe?
1: It's like, I I thought Brian had forgotten the Bitcoin and Lightning was even out there. I mean, they're about three years late to this party, but this feels like true bear market kind of work when there's really no altcoins that are just popping off like crazy so they have to ramp up engineering and scramble to like slam yet another blockchain onto the platform and so now they're looking around going maybe we should try out this lightning thing and we've been covering
0: how coinbase has their own optimism project called base or is it i think it's base their stock ticker is coin and then their altcoin is called base. And the moment they rolled that out, it was immediately used for scamming. Like I think that was the first application on it.
1: First two. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Just total scams, pump and dumps. Right. And God. we've
0: said this many times, but Coinbase's business model is to take the nastiest altcoin they can find and put it on the front page next to Bitcoin, next to Ethereum, and the inference is, hey, Bitcoin's kind of expensive, but this thing that's a couple of pennies, you could buy so much of it with $1,000. And who knows, maybe it'll moon like Bitcoin. And so people do that, they get wrecked, and uh, Coinbase uh, sells them their bags.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's good to see them do the lightning just because, to do the lightning thing, just because they, uh, they will be another onboarding path for more sats onto the lightning network. You know, there's a lot of Coinbase users out there, if they go as far as to integrate this into the app. To try to compete maybe with Strike or Cash App. that could be powerful. That's a, that's a good set of user base there that we could dip into for Lightning. They're at square zero with this, digging through the tweet thread. They're, they're just like, okay, we've decided this is a thing we're going to do stage. They're not, they're not anywhere down the path of actually integrating it into anything. But this is a very public way of saying they're going to do that work. And Bitcoin is currently at 26000 so
0: when Brian gets interested in Bitcoin, what does that mean? $14,000 Bitcoin on the horizon?
1: Yeah, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Dang it. You're probably right. Well, guess what? This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by Jupiter Broadcasting over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's uh, my barn of shows. I got a barn over there and I open it up every couple times a week and I let a show out. And uh, we just let out Coda Radio as we record and uh, we recap the Apple event and um, get into our thoughts on why Apple is leaning so hard into ESG and um, probably will upset a few people with our take. And then in framing Brent, our buddy Brent just got the brand new Framework 13 laptop. The cat And he took it apart, put it back together again, and we get his review as well as some listeners' long-term review of their framework laptops. That and more over at jupiterbroadcasting.com.
0: And this week's Bitcoin Optech number 268 covers a conversation on the Bitcoin Dev and Lightning Dev mailing list about Taproot Assets. Taproot Assets is a client-side validation protocol. The goal is to bring altcoins and stablecoins to the Bitcoin Lightning Network and... And... There's been an announcement that there are several BIPs, Bitcoin improvement proposals on the subject of Taproot assets. I think that this is kind of interesting in two ways. One, uh, this is Tarot. So Taproot assets on Lightning is, is called the Tarot protocol. And this was announced several years ago. And I think it was, you know, potentially there was a little controversy because, you know, what is this going to be good for? It's going to be good for altcoins and alternative assets on Bitcoin. And so this seems to be kind of a, venture capital interest, you know, um, lightning labs, has gotten funding from investors to do this kind of development and my sense from listening to that conversation is that the view is that ethereum got really big because of stable coins stable coins allow you to do defi and all sorts of trading and that drives a lot of adoption and so there's money to be made in supporting that development on bitcoin and being one of the early businesses in that space potentially that's my read i think it's kind of interesting that taproot assets are a bit clever, um, maybe a bit complicated. And as a result, the new assets on Bitcoin were ordinal inscriptions and BRC20 you know speculative tokens. Like they were much dumber than the taproot proposed assets. On Bitcoin. So I thought that was kind of a, maybe a funny, but interesting turn of events there.
1: We'll give it time. I'm sure they'll, they'll come up with something. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate this debate though. The, that whole, that whole area, just, it's so, it's so contentious. Um, and it just seems like something time will solve as well. And as well as the do- adoption of this stuff, but I do like keeping tabs on it. And I think that maybe the interesting thing
0: to know about tarot or, or, or taproot assets is that this is a client side validation protocol similar to RGB. And that means that there's no additional kind of weight on the blockchain. There's a transaction on the blockchain. It's just a Bitcoin. It's just a Lightning transaction. But when you're running their special software, your right. taproot node can interpret that transaction as part of this new consensus and you know that actually a taproot asset has been moved. So I think that's really interesting, and that's very scalable, because they're not adding bloat, they're not adding stuff to the Bitcoin blockchain. They're just using the blockchain to do something that they can then interpret as an asset transfer. And that, of course, is also the uh, MO of RGB, which is another client-side validation protocol. It is also focused on creating new assets.
1: Which does feel a little less contentious, doesn't it? Or it's it's less concerning as well. I'm actually always kind of a fan of a lot of the client-side stuff. It's one of the reasons I like Noster, too.
0: There is also some discussion about hash time-lock contracts, versus point time lock contracts on lightning and how Lightning messages need to be changed to accommodate the specifications of point time lock contracts. The advantage, my understanding, of moving from a HTLC to a PTLC is that PTLCs are more private, whereas the HTLC, can, you can infer information about the uh, receiver of the, con- of the uh, invoice. And that's basically all I got here.
1: Still a solid Optech and always worth a perusal. Link will be in the show notes. While you're over there, don't forget you can get a hold of us. There's a contact page. You can also email us bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com. You can try Weapon X at bitcoindadpod. Over there, I'm at Chris LES. Probably like the de facto real-time way would be the Matrix channel. There is a Bitcoin Matrix channel as well as a Bitcoin and alt questions channel. It's hosted on my Matrix server, and we'll have links in the notes for that. And with that said, it is now time to get into the boost for episode 100. Now, if you don't hear yours, don't worry. We're recording early, so we'll probably have a few... Follow up episode one hundred boost in the next episode as well, so it'll probably be in that batch. But our baller for episode one hundred is DJ via Podverse, coming in with two hundred thousand sats acro- across three boosts. And yeah, he is using Podverse. He writes, "Okay, guys, point taken regarding Xfce. I'm also sort of slow to change, though. Like a fish not seeing water, I was all in on fiat as a bank as banking worked for me until it didn't. I found blockchain to be such cool tech, but I saw really no ma- monetary value proposition until it aligned with my." needs. Still, I never really thought of Bitcoin as a scam. Those who actively detract in favor of fiat seem maxish, but they may yet come around if circumstances dictate. DJ continues, here's for a future show idea. With all the recent talk of OFAC compelling implementations of rules to censor Bitcoin transactions on the US registered Bitcoin miners. Oh, he says, oh, sorry, I'll start over. And DJ continues with another boost saying, here's a future show idea. What's with all the recent talk of OFAC compelling implementations of rules to censor the Bitcoin transactions? transactions of U.S.-registered Bitcoin miners. I believe the argument is that the majority of hash power is run by U.S.-regulated companies, KYC pools, and ASIC makers, or other centralized choke, choke points. Is this really a threat? What could be done to turn the tide and decentralize?
0: Thanks so much for the boost, DJ. I think the short answer on the risk of financial censorship of bitcoin transactions via legal pressure on US-based mining pools and miners is very real and I think that that will happen as bitcoin becomes more successful, more popular, more valuable. And so in a way, I think when that happens because because I believe it is inevitable in that regulators are looking for choke points. They're looking for places where they can put some kind of pressure to wield control over systems or activities that they feel that they don't sufficiently control. And mining is an obvious one. And I don't think on a regulatory side, there's going to be a good argument for them not to do it. Bitcoin miners could say, hey, listen, that's going to hurt our business. And I think that the U.S. financial establishment will probably say we don't care. So I believe that's definitely coming. I think that the way to combat that is likely upgrades to Bitcoin mining protocols like stratum v2, which I don't fully understand, such that the pool operator isn't building all the transactions into the block to basically make it so that if there is a pool, if there is centralized coordination, that coordination is much more limited and doesn't give the coordinator outsized control over what all of the miners in the pool are doing. That's my two sets on that.
1: That was going to be my, my basic answer, too, is I think Stratum v2 combined with other future innovations, because when these things happen, you know, um, everything from transaction fees go really high to security concerns, privacy concerns, we generally actually see the community move pretty quick to come to a solution. And uh, I would expect that to also sort of evolve to protect people's privacy. DJ capped it off, though, with uh, one last big boost. He says, uh, here's another 100,000 sats just to say thanks and hope for another set of 100 episodes. Congrats on number 100. It's a huge milestone for any podcast. Here's a token for the immense value you've delivered over the past 18 plus months, right when I really needed to get orange-pilled myself. The show has been a significant ingredient in my education. Well wishes to you both. Thank you very much, DJ. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm so glad it's been useful to you.
0: Opie 1984 boosts in 108,000 sats over two boosts using Fountain. Actually, it was a political podcast, not a Linux podcast. Opie is talking about this one time he got doxxed, interacting with a podcast host. The host was calling non-paying listeners freeloaders and then saying she needed money for her trip to Europe. Well, I can understand that. I mean, you want some cash when you're going to Europe, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, she deserves it.
0: I emailed her saying that it was a bad look and might drive listeners away from her otherwise informative show. And I guess she didn't take kindly to that. Well, the harassment lasted less than a week and I've never listened again. That, for the compliment, BDP is one of my favorites. Well, thank you so much. And also, congratulations on 100 episodes. Here's to 100 more. Thank you so much, Opie. It's great to hear from you. And we will not be sharing
1: any of your private keys on air we promise i think uh that that reaction you experienced was indicative of the guilt that she probably felt deep down mr 84 it's always great to hear from you always one of the highlights of each pod dash comes in with 100,005 sats using fountain big fan of the show along with many of the jb shows please allow me to plug my bitcoin meetup group i co-founded in japan tokyo citadel we have an event called the quote honey badger hirobra it's i probably got that wrong it's h-i-o It's H I. R-O-B-A. It's scheduled for the 22nd of September, and we're calling on all plebs in Japan to get involved. Our group is focused on freedom tech, Bitcoin, and a circular economy in Japan. Get in touch with us at tokyocitadel.com and find links in our Telegram group, meetup.com page, and Noster over there as well. That's tokyocitadel.com. Thank you, Dash. We can leave that in the show notes, and thank you so much for the boost, Dash.
0: I feel like you may have also had a podcast at one point, because Tokyo
1: Citadel seems very familiar. I think it's a great idea, though, to just get that community going over there. That seems like a really important place to get some Bitcoin adoption. And they need it. So I'm glad I'm glad you let us know about it, Dash. Thank you so much for the boost.
0: At Halleck, boosts in 100,000 sats from Fountain. Happy 100. Thoughts about how to get from Lightning Wallet or even RoboSats to cold storage. So I think <laughs> you have explored this more than me, Chris, but, you know, every... Lightning Wallet has a send-to-on-chain Function. So you can always send to the base chain to the regular Bitcoin address and just pay the on chain fee. I think that that's often the simplest thing to do. Now, is your question, how do I get it to cold storage in a private way? I think that's a lot more complicated because that generally means closing your Lightning channel, sending it into a mixing service, or sorry, a coin join like Join Market, Samurai, or Wasabi, doing some coin join and then taking your coin-joined UTXOs and sending them very carefully so they don't mix into your cold storage. Do you have a different solution, Chris?
1: Yeah, that would probably be still like the go-to guaranteed method at this point. Um, But when you say, do I have thoughts about getting from a Lightning Wallet to cold storage? I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I think about this every single day. I'm constantly rolling through my head the way I want to do this. Um, And I'm always exploring different ways. And if you're getting from RoboSats, obviously the idea is to try to keep it private. Um, I don't don't necessarily say this is a Chris-endorsed workflow, but the workflow I'm currently considering is using the Mutiny Web Wallet, MutinyWallet.com, because they will do on-demand Liquidity channels from um, who is it? It's bol- uh, not Bolts. Um, who's the big Lightning provider that I'm blanking on right now? Um, lightning Labs. No, no, the service provider. The like they. Oh yeah, come right. Um, come on, Voltage. Not Voltage. Yeah, no, it is. I'm just giving space on the back end. Mutiny is getting liquidity from Voltage, and the. Understanding that I have from hearing the developer explain the process on a podcast is if you send a Lightning transaction to a Mutiny wallet, the extent of that traceability is it went to voltage. Where it went after it reached voltage, there is no on-chain record of that. So then you would get it to a Mutiny wallet. There'd be one of thousands of thousands of users that have Lightning transactions going through voltage. Once once it's in your Mutiny wallet, you could potentially move it on-chain. Um, I've also considered using something like Exchange. BOT, Ltz.exchange. exchange. Uh, I haven't done that myself yet. So there's there's uh, there's there's also like, you know, set up a temporary Albi wall, wall, wallet. I mean, there's just so many things that I kick around with. So if the audience out there has a really smooth workflow to take sats you have on Lightning and move them confidentially on chain into cold storage, I'd love to hear those workflows. But I, that's Mutiny Wallet and Bolts are the new workflows that I've kind of been experimenting with in my head. C-Dubs comes in with 30,303 sats. No message. Just a nice 30,303 SAT support boost.
0: Thank you for the juicy boost. And we have 2,000 SATs from our Shackleford, boosting from Fountain, asking, please explain drive chains and what problems it solves. So far, it looks like a solution searching for a problem. I think that the real solution is scalability and uh, potentially privacy, because a drive chain does not need to be as constrained in terms of development as Bitcoin. So you could have a Monero-like drive chain with very good privacy, and it would be much easier than selling Bitcoin to buy Monero, doing something private, and then selling Monero to buy Bitcoin, because it would just be Bitcoin the whole time. So I think that's probably a Maybe a posit- like a good
1: argument for why you might want a drive chain. You tell us. Does that sound appealing? The Muso comes in with ten thousand sats using Podverse. I thought I'd give a shout out to the exchange I use in Australia. It's Hardblock Bitcoin. It's an Australian-owned and operated Bitcoin-only exchange. It is KYC, but it has great features. It allows for DCA and sending your Bitcoin directly into your own wallet. Hardblock.com.au. Thanks, the Muso. Always great to get some boots on the ground reports. Thank you for the boost, and I love how it's Hardblock. Because yeah. you think of
0: Crocodile Dundee, he's like a hard guy or something.
1: And I think of Bitcoin as hard money.
0: MCOT Boosin, 2,085 sats, congrats on 100 episodes,
1: your purse.
0: <laughs> okay. Hey, I'm thing uh, right
1: now, let me tell you. I think somebody's outside doing some yard work, probably perspiring. Loomer comes in with 2,000 sats. No message, though, but just thank you very much. True Grits comes in with our last boost above the cutoff at 5,000 sats, saying it was interesting hearing the WMD and Anthrax stuff on Er 9-11. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. I agree. We had 13 total boosters for episode 100 across 17 boosts, some multiple messages in there. But get this, we had a total sat all of 559,693 sats. Thank you, everybody. The value was felt for episode 100. And you still have a chance to get your uh, episode 100 congrats in too, because we're kind of splitting these up across two episodes.
0: Holy moly. Thank you so much for the support, everybody. I never
1: expected that many people to both listen and also send sats hey man as somebody who has uh, a few shows and done a few the 100 marks a big deal you know it's it's hard it's it is it is a lot of work to do this for 100 weeks and you've done a couple extra shows here and there too so it's uh it's well deserved i say well thank you i have to say that editing a podcast i had no idea (laughs) what i was signing up for yeah, you can see why so many podcasters just YOLO it and just go live to tape, even when there's bad leg and crosstalk and all that. It just it's a ton of work. But that little extra polish, I think, is appreciated. I hope. Okay, I got to ask, what is True Grits talking about with the WMD and Anthrax stuff? Um, I don't know. Did we talk about that? I do recall that the, there was like a one or two senators or whatever it was, Congress critters that were against Bush and Cheney's plan to go into Iraq to stop, you know, Hussein's proliferation of WMDs. And those senators got anthrax in the mail. You remember that? Oh, right. Yeah. And then it turned out that anthrax was produced at a U.S. federally owned lab and that it's because of the, the way it's weaponized. It's a very traceable thing down to the individual lab. And it turns out the anthrax came from a U.S. lab. Old Awkward. Bush and Dick. Awkward. <laughs> Remember how fun the Bush administration was back in the day? Man, this feels. <laughs> we think politics are crazy, but that's that's pretty crazy stuff. Did you watch that
0: movie about Dick Cheney? And gosh, what was the actor who did it? He was Batman,
1: the Batman actor. Then I don't think I Dick have Cheney. seen that. I I do have the movie uh, on my system, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, it's it's quite a movie. <laughs> Oh, man, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And those were some of the you think about a younger or however old Satoshi watching those world events going on, getting inspired to create Bitcoin. Right. I mean, those were some of the movements in the world that that led to the release of the white paper and then to Bitcoin. It's uh, it's all history now. If you want to send a boost into the show, just get Albie, get albie.com. You can top it off directly. They got a couple of options now or anything that's on the lightning network. You can send from a Lightning system to another Lightning system. That's how it works. And Alby's one of those. Then you head over to the podcast index, find the Bitcoin Dad Pod, and you can boost in from the web. We got a link in our show notes. Or experience the revolution. Get a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain, Podverse, and Castomatic seem to be the most popular in our community. And then you get a whole bunch of new features for the podcast that support it. And there's always more coming.
0: This has been the hundredth episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on September thirteenth, a little early, twenty twenty three. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and. I- I really appreciate everyone listening and boosting in. And I'm here as always with.
1: With with me, Chris. You. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Hey. See you next time. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Who, me? (laughs) You.